This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Franco Zeffirelli's production of La Boheme opened at the Met in 1981 and has since captured the hearts of audiences hundreds of times over. What is it that keeps audiences coming back to this work again and again? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Seeing Puccini's La Boheme at the Met is a decades-old New York City dating ritual. Remember Nicolas Cage and Cher in the film Moonstruck? La Boheme is also the most performed work in the Met's repertoire. In just a few days, Zeffirelli's famously romantic Met production will be broadcast live in HD to movie theaters across the globe, starring Sonia Yoncheva as Mimi and Michael Fabiano as Rodolfo. I'm Stuart Holt, and today's episode features Guild lecturer Naomi Baratera exploring the musical and dramatic elements of Puccini's timeless masterpiece. On February 1, 1896, Puccini's La Boheme made its world premiere in Turin, Italy, under the baton of Arturo Toscanini. Over the past 120 years, La Boheme has become a permanent fixture of the opera world, consistently ranking within the top five most often performed operas worldwide, and it is the most often performed opera in the history of the Metropolitan Opera Company. It has also accrued a long list of pop culture references, earning it the nostalgic place in many people's hearts as their first opera-going experience and continually bringing it into the orbit of audience members who might not have been searching for opera, but stumble upon it in a roundabout way. If you don't think you know anything about La Boheme, here are a few places that you might have been introduced to elements of the opera without even realizing it. If you're a fan of jazz singer Della Reese, you might recognize the song Don't You Know. in love with you for the rest 
of my whole life Don't you know I was yours from the very day But you happened to come my way This is an adaptation of Musetta's big aria in Act Two of La Boheme, Quando Menvo. theater and Broadway people that are listening, that same musical excerpt, Musetta's Waltz, is also quoted in the musical Rent, which is often considered the musical theater equivalent to La Boheme. Playwright Billy Aronson, who came up with the original idea of giving Puccini's classic opera a modern musical update, once described his idea as a musical in which the luscious splendor of Puccini's world would be replaced with the coarseness and noise of modern New York. After beginning his collaboration on the project with composer Jonathan Larson, the story was updated and autobiographical elements from Larson's own experiences were woven into the fabric of the musical, while still maintaining strong ties to the original source material. Many of the character names are either the same or closely parallel those in the opera. Rodolfo becomes Roger, Marcello becomes Mark, Musetta becomes Maureen, Colina becomes Tim Collins, Chouinard becomes Angel Chouinard, and Benoit becomes Benny or Benjamin. The romanticized bohemian world of Parisian starving artists in the 1880s are updated to New York City's East Village circa 1990, and many of the big numbers in the musical can be mapped dramatically to corresponding moments in the opera. For example, there is a moment in the opera where Mimi knocks on the door of the apartment or the garret where Rodolfo and his friends live, and asks Rodolfo if he can light her candle, which the wind has blown out. This is their love at first sight moment, and it sounds like this. this scene has a corresponding musical number that captures the same sentiment. What you forget Got a light I know you, you're You're shivering It's nothing that turns off my heat And I'm just a little 
And although not much of Puccini's music is directly quoted in the musical, the main theme of Musetta's waltz, that big aria in Act II, Quando Menvo, is quoted by the electric guitar in some of the very dramatic high points between Roger and Mimi. For example, I should tell you, I have always loved you. You can see it in my eyes. Me, me, me. If neither jazz or musical theater is your thing, then you may have encountered bits of this opera through film. One of the big arias in Act One, where Rodolfo comments on how cold Mimi's hands are, he takes her hands into his to warm them and goes on to introduce himself, talking about his life as a poet. This aria can be found on the soundtrack to the 2015 film Solace, and it sounds like this. After Rodolfo and Mimi get to know each other, Act One ends with a glorious duet, O Suave Fanchula, which really is the moment where they confess their feelings of love for one another, a true finale to this love at first sight scene. Given the sweeping romanticism of this duet, it should come as no surprise that this has appeared on several film soundtracks. Think of the letter-writing scene in the 2007 romantic drama Atonement. 
and of course, one of my favorite films, the 1987 classic Moonstruck. And Moonstruck deserves a very special mention here, because not only does Puccini's score for La Boheme fill the movie soundtrack, the story itself is deeply connected with going to see the opera at the Met. Nicolas Cage's character, Ronnie, famously declares to Loretta, played by Cher, that... I love two things. I love you, and, and I love the opera. Now, if I can have the two things that I love together for one night, I would be satisfied to give up... Oh, Christ. To give up the rest of my life. All right, all right. All right. All right! Meet me at the mat. All right, all right. Loretta agrees to go, and he takes her to see La Boheme at the Met. My very quick description does not even begin to do this film justice. If you have never seen Moonstruck, get your hands on a copy and make it your next movie night. You won't be sorry. But back to Boheme, I think it is clear from our brief tour through pop culture references that there is an incredibly romantic quality to this opera that continues to speak to listeners even an entire century after its creation. So in the rest of our time together, we're going to explore the history behind this work, the source material and the creative process that turned the story from a piece of literature into a theatrical stage work. We're going to dig deeper into the score to try and tease out all the different musical elements that Puccini has woven together. And we'll talk about the Zeffirelli production that you will see in the live in HD broadcast that has become such an important part of this opera's history here in New York City. Let's begin by talking about the source material. In 1845, a French writer by the name of Henri Mourget began publishing a series of stories in a magazine, romanticizing the life and times of bohemian artists in 1840s Paris. A few years later, the stories were turned into a play, which became incredibly popular. Inspired by the popularity of the play, Mourget turned the collection of stories into a novel and published it under the title La Vie de Bohème in 1851. Because of the way Mourget originally wrote the stories as a kind of loosely connected series of vignettes, there was no strong unifying plot structure, which meant that turning the source material into an opera was no straight shot in the barrel. Which characters would the opera plot focus on? what dramatic events made sense to keep in the opera from the original source material, and how much of the dramatic action needed to be invented by the librettists. Collaborators, Luigi Ilica and Giuseppe Giacosa, began by taking a cue from Mourget's play version of the story, which condensed two female characters from his original stories into one, Mimi, and focused the story on her relationship with Rodolfo. Ultimately, the scenes that most closely follow excerpts from the source material happen in Acts 1 and 4 of the opera, including the moment where Mimi and Rodolfo meet, and at the end of the opera, everything culminating in Mimi's death. But the action of Acts 2 and 3 in the opera are largely invented by Ilica and Giacosa, with no direct parallels to the Mourget source material. Now, before Puccini's final version of the opera made its world premiere, it became the focus of a very public scandal. Or, to be more precise, it was the focal point of a dispute between Puccini and his composer colleague Ruggiero Leoncavallo, who we know today as the composer of Pagliacci. The story goes that after finishing Manon Lescaut in the fall of 1892, Puccini set to work composing a new opera, which he actually never finished, 
based on a short story by Giovanni Verga entitled La Lupa, or The She-Wolf. During the following winter, his friend and fellow composer Leon Cavallo showed him a libretto titled La Boheme and even suggested to Puccini that he consider working on it. Puccini apparently declined as he was completely enthralled with the story of La Lupa at that point, so Leon Cavallo set to work turning Boheme into an opera himself. Then, in March 1893, Puccini informed Leon Cavallo that he had decided to write an opera based on the story of La Boheme after all, but he had his own libretto in the works. Leon Cavallo was furious and demanded that Puccini stop work on the project, essentially saying that he had rights to the material and had arrived at the idea first. Puccini refused and the argument became very public. Leon Cavallo published a statement in the local newspaper saying, I, Maestro Leon Cavallo, wish to make known that I signed a contract for the new opera and have since then been working on the music for the subject of La Boheme. Maestro Puccini told me a few days ago that he was writing Boheme and has confessed that only upon returning from Turin a few days ago did he have the idea of setting La Boheme and that he spoke of it to Ilica and Giacosa, who he says have not yet finished the libretto. Thus, it is indisputably established that I, Maestro Lan Cavallo, have priority over this operatic subject. Puccini replied with his own public statement, saying, From Maestro Lan Cavallo's declaration in yesterday's Il Secolo, the public must understand my complete innocence. For, to be sure, if Maestro Lan Cavallo, for whom I have long felt great friendship, had confided to me earlier what he suddenly made known to me the other evening, then I would certainly not have thought of Mourget's Bohème for an opera. Now, for reasons easy to understand, I am no longer inclined to be as courteous to him as I might like, either as a friend or musician. After all, what does this matter to him? Let him compose and I will compose. The public will judge. Precedence in art does not imply that identical subjects must be interpreted by identical artistic ideas. I only want to make it known that for about two months, namely since the first performance of Manon Lascaux in Turin, I have worked earnestly on my idea of Bohème and made no secret of this to anyone. So Leon Cavallo charged forth with his Bohème, Puccini continued working on his Bohème, and in the end they ended up in a race of sorts to see who could make it to opening night first. But still Puccini's attention was divided. Luigi Ilica and Giuseppe Giocosa grew more and more frustrated as Puccini was still toying with La Lupa while they were trying to make progress on Boheme. Puccini finally decided to stop all work on La Lupa and focused solely on Boheme around July of 1894 when he said, in a letter, Instead of being enthusiastic about the she-wolf, I confess I am assailed by innumerable doubts. I am only sorry about the time that I have lost, but I shall make up for it by throwing myself, with all my heart, into Bohème. He renewed his focus on Bohème, which brought a new kind of frustration to the creative process, as Puccini was extremely demanding and picky in the formation of the libretto. He was meticulous and stubborn, making sure every last detail was to his liking. And Puccini was not satisfied from the get-go with the plan and structure that Ilica and Giacosa had come up with in adapting the Mourget source material to an operatic framework. 
and he exasperated both of them with his constant demands for changes. In that same letter I just read from, he also continued writing, saying, The second act, which later became the scene for Act 3, does not please me much. I'm annoyed by all these trifling episodes which have nothing at all to do with the action of the drama. We ought to find an entirely different setting. This kind of artistic bickering continued until Giacosa, completely fed up with Puccini's constant meddling, wrote to their publisher, Giulio Ricordi, and said, I confess to you that all of this incessant rewriting, retouching, adding, correcting, taking away, sticking on again, puffing it out on the right side just to thin it down on the left, I am sick to death. Curse the libretto. Despite this tumultuous creative process, the opera was completed and made its world premiere on February 1st, 1896 at Turin's Teatro Reggio, conducted by Toscanini. And it actually beat Leon Cavallo's Bohème to the stage by over a year. Leon Cavallo's Bohème premiered in May of 1897 at La Fenice in Venice, but never gained the staying power that Puccini's did. Even though reviews of opening night for Puccini's La Bohème were a little mixed, it did pick up pretty quickly in popularity, and productions were mounted in Naples, Bologna, and Rome before the end of that year. By the end of 1897, it had spread beyond Italy, reaching stages in England, Germany, France, and Argentina, and it made its way to New York City by May of 1898, with a Metropolitan Opera premiere happening on November 9, 1900, with Dame Nellie Melba singing Mimi. Now that we have some context for the creative path this opera took from the page to the stage, let's shift gears and talk about the music. Talking about Puccini's musical genius can be hard because his music seems so incredibly likable and sweeping and emotionally over the top, and it can be so easy to fall in love with and yet so hard to describe how the appeal of that music is created. The way in which Puccini created such likable music did not seem to fit the mold of what came before him. So when critics and writers began analyzing and studying Puccini's music, which actually didn't really happen for a good 50 years or so after his death, scholars pointed to his melodic genius, attention to orchestral color, and the ability to create atmospheric music that seemed to perfectly fit the drama. And although these criteria seem to be perfectly laudable to us today, it was very different from how scholars had talked about composers like say, Mozart, whose musical genius manifested itself in a completely different way in an opera score. It's almost as if Puccini was not taken seriously because the music was so easy to fall in love with. As one scholar stated, Puccini's music often sounds better than it is, owing to the perfect adjustment of means to an end. But scholars like Arthur Groose and Roger Parker have described how Puccini occupies this amazing and brilliant middle ground stylistically, and what sounds so good is actually achieved by his own brand of genius. They described it in this way. It is sometimes thought that Puccini represents a halfway house between Verdi and Wagner, a composer rooted in the Italian tradition of vocal melody, but strongly influenced by German practice in a number of respects. The use of the orchestra as a binding force over long stretches of music, the consistent association of characters with motifs or themes, and the development of a more chromatic palette when required by the needs of the drama. 
and the resulting mixture in Puccini, whatever its origins, must be understood in its own terms. And that consistent association of characters with motifs or themes that Gruss and Parker mention is what I think one of the most amazing compositional elements within the musical construction of La Boheme. We call this thematic recall or thematic reminiscence. This is very similar to the idea of leitmotif, which we strongly associate with the works of Richard Wagner. The idea that a small chunk or nugget or musical motif becomes associated with a character, a concept, or a dramatic theme in the story, and that motif comes back again and again throughout the opera, conveying some kind of extra musical meaning to the audience because of the symbolic meaning associated with it. For example, if we hear a leitmotif connected with a particular character, but they're not on stage, it functions as a kind of clue to the audience that what is happening on stage is somehow connected with this absent person. Leitmotifs are generally very short. Sometimes they can be a single chord or just one or two bars of music. Thematic recall is a little bit different, mostly in that Puccini recalled melodies a lot more freely than Wagner's strict approach to leitmotif, and the reoccurring themes tend to morph and change and evolve, or sometimes only come back in little fragments. And the meaning associated with this reoccurring theme can have broader interpretations than the strict idea of a leitmotif. When either an entire melody or a fragment of a melody is recalled in Puccini's La Boheme, we are not always reminded of a super-specific plot point, but we are reminded of the dramatic scenario in which we first heard the theme, which can add a kind of emotional punch or dramatic pathos to the new situation in which the theme is being recalled. We're going to listen to some of the most powerful thematic reminiscences in the opera and get some plot context along the way as we go, as well as a sense of that orchestral fabric functioning as a binding force for the story. One of the first things that you hear is a theme that becomes strongly associated with the little Parisian apartment where the group of artists live. It has a lively, energetic feel to it, and fun fact, if you're ever at Opera Pub Quiz, it's actually a self-quotation by Puccini from a symphonic work that he had written several years earlier called Capriccio Sinfonico. In this first scene of Act One, the first thing that we hear, we hear this theme, we're introduced to this group of artists, Rodolfo, a poet, Marcello, an artist, and Colina, a philosopher. And the first thing that Rodolfo sings is a melody that becomes associated with him over and over again throughout the opera. The first time we hear it, it sounds like this. (laughs) 
Marcello and all of Rodolfo's friends leave, planning to go out on the town, and Rodolfo stays behind to finish a few things before joining them. Once alone, there's a knock on the door, and he answers it to find Mimi. The two have never met, but the music tells us that they are immediately enchanted with one another. Mimi asks Rodolfo if he has fire to light her candle. She drops her key, and the two fumble around in the dark trying to find it. Rodolfo finds it first and quickly pockets it so that their meeting doesn't have to end so soon. Even before Mimi knocks on the door, the music paints the sonic picture of delicate footsteps outside the apartment door. And then as she enters and begins to sing, we hear her theme which seems to perfectly capture her as a character. As Mimi and Rodolfo get talking, they introduce themselves to one another, they share little bits and pieces about their lives, and as Rodolfo does this, his theme comes back as he passionately describes his life as a poet. with a parallel aria-like moment where she says, My name is Lucia, but my friends call me Mimi. And she goes on to describe her life with her musical theme accompanying her.
Marcello, Colina, and Rodolfo's group of friends call up from the street below, tired of waiting for him to join them. He shouts down that he will be there soon, and he and Mimi essentially decide to leave and go join them together, the act ending with a glorious and famous duet, O Suave Fanciulla, which we've already heard a little bit of, and this, the main melody of this, is what becomes a thematic reminiscence of Rodolfo and Mimi's love. So all of these musical ideas that seem to perfectly express the circumstances and sentiments of the dramatic moment in which we first hear them will come back throughout the opera, reminding us of these moments. Another important musical element connected with the idea of thematic reminiscence is the through-composed structure of the score. This means that the opera unfolds in a constant flow of music, with smooth and seamless transitions from one scene or moment to the next. There are no numbers or strict boundaries between recitative, our speech-like singing, and melodious song-like aria singing. There are aria-like moments, there are recitative-like moments, but there's no stopping and starting, stopping and starting in between them. The soaring aria moments are beautiful and gorgeous, with orchestration that blooms and flowers and sweeps you away, but it can be difficult to excise those moments from the score because the seams between them and the next moment are so smoothly blended together that everything just flows from one moment to the next. As an example, let's listen to one of the very popular moments from Act 2. This is in the Café Momu, where Mimi, Rodolfo, and all of their friends, including Marcello and his ex-girlfriend Musetta, are in attendance. This is where Puccini weaves together the chaos of the café atmosphere into Musetta's aria, that very famous waltz, Quando Men Vo, where she's trying to get Marcello's attention and make him mad with jealousy, which then transitions into this choral chaos expressing the busy café, Marcello is muttering that he can hardly stand it, Musetta is relishing her moment in the spotlight, 
and eventually the group of friends all leave together with Marcello and Musetta dramatically reunited and everyone successfully skips out on the bill.
Within the through-composed musical style, the reoccurring musical themes provide coherence, and Puccini uses the constant flow of music to create realistic musical pictures of the setting. Puccini is able to create a tinta, or musical atmosphere, unlike any composer before him. The crackling of a fire, a light-hearted joke amongst friends, the shy, nervous feelings of first love, the chaos of a crowd at a cafe are all perfectly painted through the music so that the music itself is an equal partner to the words and the actions on stage in telling the story. There is no better example of this than the opening of Act 3. It is winter, snow is falling, and there is a deadly chill in the air. When the curtain opens, this is what we hear, painting a musical picture of a snowy landscape at dawn.
Rodolfo has left Mimi following a jealous fit, and Mimi seeks out Marcello to ask him to talk to Rodolfo on her behalf to try and smooth things over. Rodolfo comes out looking for Marcello, and Mimi hides. While hiding, she overhears that Rodolfo admits to Marcello that although he was jealous, he was growing increasingly concerned about Mimi's health, fearing her violent coughing, and as a poor poet, he doesn't have the means to give her what she needs to get healthy again. He hoped that by leaving her in a jealous rage, she would be motivated to move on and find a wealthy man who could look after her. Mimi asks Rodolfo if they can part ways as friends, but their love for one another is too strong and they decide to stay together a little longer until springtime comes. While Mimi and Rodolfo are reconciling, Marcello and Musetta are beginning to argue, as he returned from talking to Mimi and Rodolfo only to find her flirtatiously talking to other men. Once again, Puccini's ability to dramatically express through music the polarized experiences of these two couples is amazing as the act comes to a close.
When Act 4 begins, we are back where we started in Act 1, in the tiny Parisian apartment with the four friends, Rodolfo, Marcello, Colina, and Chouinard, once again lamenting their meager existence. Mimi has left Rodolfo, Musetta has left Marcello, and they are once again living on scraps and dreaming of a more luxurious existence. But Musetta soon enters in a panic. Mimi has left her wealthy new lover, and Musetta found her on the street, collapsed and weak. She asks to be brought to Rodolfo. The men lift the frail and weak Mimi to a bed, and Musetta and Marcello leave to try and sell Musetta's earrings to buy some medicine. Colina and Chunard try to pawn Colina's coat, and alone, Mimi and Rodolfo recall their days of happiness together. Here, all of the musical themes that we heard in Act 1 when Rodolfo and Mimi first met, they all come back and we have this beautiful thematic reminiscence reminding us of that moment that was so full of love and hope.
As the others return with medicine and a muff, Mimi claims that she is feeling better, even though she looks much worse. Rodolfo sits beside her bed as she falls asleep, but Chouinard realizes that she's not sleeping. She has died, and the opera ends with Rodolfo crying her name in anguish as the curtain falls.
Though it may be a heartbreaking tragedy, part of the appeal of this opera is that it is such a perfectly balanced night of theater, compared by some to the balance of a complete symphony. As described by the San Diego Opera, it has been pointed out that this is, perhaps, Puccini's tightest score and dramatically his most cogent opera by virtue of the control he exerted over the musical material. Compared to his earlier masterpiece, Manon Lescaut, this opera is a modicum of unity in every possible way. Look at the way the four acts are structured. Unity is produced by virtue of the fact that both the first act and the fourth act open in the same location, Rodolfo's garret, with the same two characters in mid-conversation, Rodolfo and Marcello, and with virtually the same music, the so-called bohemian theme or the garret theme. Notice also that Acts 1 and 4 are very musically similar. Most of the musical themes introduced in Act 1 recur in Act 4, supporting the dramatic device of the two young lovers reminiscing over their first meeting as Mimi lies dying. In Act 2, the shortest of the four acts, introducing new musical material and new characters, such as Musetta. With the act's quicker tempo, it has the overall effect of a scherzo. Act 3 contains the heart of the opera, the tempos are somewhat slower, and there's a more nostalgic, bittersweet atmosphere. Many commentators have noted that La Boheme is built like a four-movement symphony. This may not have been due to any conscious effort on Puccini's part, but in fact, the above-stated symphonic and cyclical structures give the opera dramatic and musical unity, something that Leon Cavallo's Boheme effort sorely missed. When you pair the perfect balance of romance, heartbreak, realism, and emotional sweep of Puccini's score to the awe-inspiring production by Franco Zeffirelli, it truly is a transcendent night at the opera. Zeffirelli once said that there is something in this work, in La Boheme, that you cannot destroy. Tragic love, alternating with moments of beauty and naturalistic realism. In talking about his design of the Met production, he said he wanted to create a set that is something that Puccini would want to see, something that honored the composer's conception of the work and created a dream of a past culture that was perfectly understandable to the audiences of today. He wanted to illustrate and visualize through the set all of those musical textures, to create a small personal space, a little nest, for the four starving kids of Act One to capture the little story of the people, the real humans of the story. When the curtain opened on Act Two on the opening night of Zeffirelli's production in 1981, the crowd erupted in applause at the sheer grandeur of the set. When you see it, whether live in the Opera House or in the HD broadcast, you will see how brilliantly the design makes it seem as if you've been dropped right into the middle of a busy, crowded Paris street. In Act 3, the snowy landscape, paired with the falling snow, makes it seem as if the stage does not end, as if it goes on forever, and it looks so cold that you can almost feel a chill coming from the stage. When you're sitting in the audience, it really does feel cold when that curtain opens. And then for Act 4, we're back in that Parisian apartment, that personal space where we first met Rodolfo at the beginning of the opera. That this production has remained in the Met repertory for over 30 years and remains incredibly loved by audiences 
even if critics are often divided on its over-the-top, lavish, traditional aesthetic, is truly an amazing part of opera history today. The staying power that this production has is something of a theatrical legend. As Zachary Wolfe described in the New York Times, Zeffirelli's La Boheme remains untouchable. It occupies a position in the canon that is unusual even by opera's stubbornly backward-looking standards. We seem to have an almost instinctive desire for this piece to remain the same, to be the opera we encountered as children. Is that something we should resist? After exploring the new perspective offered by a variety of new Bohem productions across the globe, Wolf concluded that there is an age and familiarity in the Zeffirelli production that adds a poignancy that enhances the piece and that, in some sense, completes it. Since I know you can't see the production while you're listening to this podcast, to give you a sense of the production aesthetic that garnered so much love and adoration from the moment it opened, here are two reviews from the 1981 premiere that I think capture the feeling that one gets when you see Zeffirelli's La Boheme for the first time in person. In a review in a 1981 publication of Newsweek, Charles Mishner wrote, Zeffirelli understands what the Puccini scholar Mosco Karner has written about Bohème, that it is the first opera in history to achieve an almost perfect fusion of romantic and realistic elements with impressionistic features. His own fusion is masterly. From the smoking chimneys rising above the Paris rooftops on which Rodolfo's garret perches, to the icicles on the tavern in the snow scene, from the literally hundreds of Parisians going about their Christmas Eve in the gorgeously expansive Latin Quarter scene, to the intimate close-up scenes in which the singers seem really engaged in conversation, Zeffirelli brings out all of the opera's marvelously spontaneous, almost improvisatory qualities. And as another review by Thor Eckert stated, When the curtain rose on the second act of Franco Zeffirelli's new production of La Boheme at the Metropolitan Opera, the audience erupted in a roar of acclaim, amazement, and even disbelief, a roar that went on for nearly a minute. Stage designer-director Zeffirelli has quite literally recreated a typical Mamar Hill Street in Paris, circa 1840. Rarely has the Met stage been more brilliantly used. The set is on three levels, with the Café Momou on the ground level receding back under the set. A huge staircase is on the audience's left, the chorus milling around above the indoor Momou, and there's another large staircase in the back right-hand corner of the set. By the end of the act, the audience had erupted three more times with applause for the Zeffirelli spectacle, which culminated in a huge parade bringing some 240 people on the Met stage. For those who think it is too busy and overblown, imagine a Paris at Christmas with a mere handful of people on stage. The confusion Zeffirelli creates is masterfully controlled, and the rest of the production is equally magnificent. In Act 3, the inn is a small ramshackle affair in the lower right-hand corner of another massive but stunning set. Here, the street leading to the Parisian gate sweeps down, ramp-like, from audience left to right. Figures on it are blurred by the misty, snowy atmosphere, thanks to an effective scrim, yet the playing center gives the principals plenty of room to retain focus down front, while framed by a breathtakingly beautiful tableau. 
The Bohemian's Garret is a cutaway attic, quite literally set on the stage rooftops of Paris, complete with tiles, smoking chimney pots, a cramped, impoverished abode for the quartet this story inhabits. It is the finest Bohème production this critic ever hopes to see, absolutely right for a house of this size and scope. So for those of you who are seeing La Boheme at the Met for the very first time, I am so excited for you. It is such a special experience and such a piece of opera history. And I am thrilled that the HD broadcast will allow thousands of opera goers across the globe to experience Zeffirelli's magical production. And for all the New Yorkers out there looking for a romantic night out, if you can handle the heartbreak of Puccini's ravishing score then this Saturday you can take a line straight out of Moonstruck and say to your date, meet me at the Met. Thank you very much and enjoy the opera. That was Naomi Baratera talking about Puccini's La Boheme. The Metropolitan Opera Live in HD broadcast of La Boheme is this Saturday, February the 24th, and can be seen in movie theaters around the globe. Visit metopera.org for more information. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. We'll be back with you in two weeks with an episode on Rossini's Semiramide, Until then, I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.